The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Porky Bill, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing that a dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Tara Martin-Lopez. Tara is an associate professor of sociology and the chair of humanities and social sciences at Northern New Mexico College. Her work focuses on the intersection between gender, race and social movements with a particular focus on the U.S. punk movement. She also wrote a book of one of the most tumultuous periods in post-war British history, entitled The Winter of Discontent, Myth, Memory, and History, which was published by Liverpool University Press in 2014. Welcome to the podcast, Tara. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? I'm a native New Mexican, so we don't have any really major league teams. If you have roots from northern New Mexico like I do, you support the Denver Broncos. So I do have to say I used to support the Denver Broncos. And what is your favorite <laughs> political song? It's Double Dare You by Bikini Kill. I first saw Bikini Kill in Berkeley in, I think, 1995, and it really changed my life. I found punk as an expression of my feminist politics. And so Kathleen Hanna and Toby Vail and the rest of them changed my life with that song. Awesome. And finally, what is your favorite political book? Okay, I'm going to cheat there. There are three. <laughs> so if we would talk about originals, it would be Albert Camus' The Plague and Primo Levi's Survival in Auschwitz. I think both of those are just formative to who I am. But right now in the current political climate is Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny, mm-hmm. I think is really an instructive handbook for our current times. So before we talk about punk in the United States, I wanted to know a bit more about your book on the winter of discontent in the UK. And so mm-hmm. for the non-British, as well as the younger listeners, what was the winter of discontent? The winter of discontent was a series of strikes during the winter of 1978 and 1979. And it had to do with British trade unions defying wage restraint government at time was a labor government, right? So a left-leaning government. Mm -hmm. And so once Ford workers broke the wage restraint in the beginning of the winter of 1978, low-wage workers, along with lorry drivers, etc., they started to call for a series of strikes so they could increase the well-being of their members. Right. So why it's important, just so like, okay, so it's a series of strikes, you know, who cares? Well, it's actually crucial and the repercussions are global in scale since many of these strikes, in particular, the ones that were waged by the lowest paid workers were the ones that were most vilified because they were in the public sector. And so as we know, public sector strikes are oftentimes very, very unpopular because they affect the public. So the images that somebody would see automatically if they looked up the winner of discontent were piles of rubbish in Leicester Square, people getting turned away at graveyards because of grave diggers strikes and so forth. Right. And so those those strikes did indeed occur. However, what Margaret Thatcher did is that she used those images in many ways like a cudgel against not only the labor government, but also just the post-war consensus, you know, the post-war yeah. establishment. 
And she was able to do it effectively and came to office in 1979, really on the heels of the winner of discontent. And she continued to use the imagery and the myth of the winner of discontent to prove on her point, supposedly, that there is no alternative. Tina, as you they refer, right. there is no alternative, meaning right. neoliberal monetarism was really the answer to the chaos. Literally, she would bring up pictures of the winner of discontent on the campaign trail in the 80s. So that's why it's so important. And normally when we think about strikes, we think about men. And most of the pictures of strikes tend to be of grim-looking men. But you actually focus on the role of women in the winter of discontent as mm -hmm. well. What role did women play? My book focuses on women in Newby, but there are women in other unions. Newby, really in the 1970s, they started to have a lot of women come into the workforce. You know, these working class women were usually supplanting the wages of their husbands, or sometimes they were benefiting from new divorce laws, so they can be single and they could be a cafeteria worker. So at first, they really didn't play a significant role in the unions because what would happen, for instance, in schools, the cafeteria workers would be women, but the janitors would be men, and they would be the shop stewards. And they would dictate how the women voted. But mm -hmm. by the, the mid-1970s, Newby made a concerted effort to mobilize these women and make them into shop stewards. So really around winter of discontent, many of these women that were in many ways controlled by these male shop stewards started to have a voice. And they began to become very mobilized, in particular around the fact that they had very low wages, especially women in London that were Afro-Caribbean, South Asian. They started to exert their influence. So even though it's ignored in many accounts of the winter of discontent, you'll see nurses, you'll see cafeteria workers, a variety of different women that really took the stage in the winter of discontent. And one of my key arguments is that that series of strikes propelled them forward into more prestigious influential levels of trade union involvement, whether it be supporting right. the miners' strike or just taking the lead in Newpy, which eventually became Unison. So they, they were a very, very important component of those series of strikes, but they were obliterated by the myth. Right. And so what would you say is the myth of the winter of discontent? A study by the Labour Party in the early 90s showed that people who didn't live during the winter of discontent had a more poignant memory of it than people who actually did. And why I underline that is that there are some facts that you see from the myth, but it's misarranged. So to get more specific, the first component is that the winter of discontent was a horrible debacle on the part of trade unions and social democracy, etc. Well, indeed, Margaret Thatcher used that to really eviscerate trade union rights in the UK. However, for these women, for instance, if we take the perspective of women and women of color in particular or low-wage men, this was a time of exciting activism. Right. Um, and I think that's an important point for us to learn today that we could use those defeats as a component of inspiring us. Yeah. And I think it's also a good reminder of something that you focus on, that history often is about white men. It writes out, ignores women or people of color 
right? So if the situation for white men or white working class men became worse, then the situation became worse. Whereas sometimes actually one group can go backward and another group can go forward. It's just that those other groups don't get the spotlight. I agree with you. And I think if you or your listeners have or will read George Lipstitz, his idea of counting memory is really central to almost all of my work. He's a historian and cultural studies professor in the Black Studies Department at UCSB, I think. And his idea of counter memory is that it's not that when you bring in different groups in regards to history, that it should be a side note, but that it's actually central and it brings a wider picture. So counter memory, like remembering the efforts of people who have been obliterated by myth, actually enhances our understanding on a whole of history as well. But Oftentimes there's backlash against it and that has to do with power relations. Yeah, I agree. So moving to punk in the U.S., you co-authored an article about, and I quote, the greatest punk rock band in the world. Now, I know that you're not referring to the super suckers who say this about (laughs) themselves all the time, but who are the greatest punk rock band in the world and why do they deserve this title? Well, the title of the greatest punk rock band in the world actually comes from Dale Jennifer, who's from The Bad Brains. And that came from a gig poster for The Bad Brains that they had put on there. So that's really where the title comes from. But the thrust of the chapter is to resituate The Bad Brains into the punk rock pantheon and also like the repercussions of that too. So when I was in the punk movement, I guess I'm still a punk, right? Of course. Yeah, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I knew that there were tons of punks that weren't white. But as I started to read more and more about punk and get interested in the history of punk, it continually was referred to as like a white boy movement, quote unquote. And it didn't resonate with my experience where the majority of the people that I went to shows with were of color, in particular Chicanos. So when I started to listen to The Bad Brains, I thought, oh, well, this is it. And I also watched the Spooner documentary on Afropunk, and that really changed the way I saw punk because that resonated with me. You know, personally, there are many punk bands that I love, but I think The Bad Brains deserve that title because they're so foundational to punk, especially hardcore punk. They influence Fugazi, Black Flag. We're looking at that concept of counter memory again. It's a tool for those of us who are punks of color to say, hey, no, this is ours. Like punk is is for everybody, right? And so I think especially with the Afro-punk movement, the Bad Brains are part of how they are the greatest punk rock band in the world because they're just like a point in a constellation of how much punks of color, queer women punks of color have really contributed to punk. I find it frustrating because it's continually repeated in Rolling Stone or something like that, where it's like, yeah, well, this is white music, or they're shocked that there's like a Chicano singer or a Black singer. It's like, no, we created it. We're there. So that's why Bad Brains is the greatest punk rock band in the world, because it shows that we punks of color do exist and we continue to exist. Right. I saw Bad Brains in The Hague in the Netherlands in 1987, and I have to admit, I had to Google when exactly that was. But I, I vividly remember the show, and unfortunately, as a lot of shows of U.S. bands in the Netherlands, they are not at their best after a few days and nights in, in Amsterdam. But of course, with a band that consists of Rastafari, the, the influence of what the Netherlands is so famous for was even stronger. However, at that point in time, 
we had, of course, a very small kind of hardcore scene, but the bad raids were like big, like, and were really seen as a foundational band of, of US hardcore. What was their status in the DC area where they were from and which had its own influential punk scene, as well as the US punk scene general of that period? In DC, they were definitely seen as foundational as well. And if we think about it, especially at that time, Washington, DC was known as quote unquote chocolate city because you had this strong African-American community. And in many ways, the bad brains were a reflection of that. They were key to the development of Black Flag. You know, Henry Rollins always cites that he saw the bad brains and it changed his life forever or Fugazi. So I think their status there People know about them there, but I think when you got to my generation and, you know, I was into 1990s punk and so forth, I didn't really hear about them until people told me about them. And then when the Afropunk movement started, especially with the Spooner documentary, that's really when I became cognizant of them. And again, it, it might just be my lack of knowledge, but I think it was part of this like mainstream conception that really Blacks and Chicanos and indigenous folk were not really interested in punk or, and also like just working class white people were not interested in punk. That was a middle class white thing. I think their status is beginning to be reformed as you see more and more documentaries about the bad brains, but also, you know, other ones like the band named death out of Mm -hmm. Detroit and all black band. That was just amazing story. I didn't know about this. And so, Yes, exactly. So I think I'm I'm part of that generation where their memory was erased. And also like when you come from a community of color, it's not just mainstream media, but communities of color oftentimes see, you know, subcultures or music worlds like that as just why are you listening to white music? When you can listen to, you know, Chicano music or something like that, that's definitely yeah. what happened in my family. Like, you should wear makeup and listen to Selena. But then they don't realize that there are a whole bunch of Chicanos making some really hardcore punk. And they're, you know, they're singing in Spanish. They're talking about inequality and talking about racism. So that dichotomy was very prevalent. But I think, again, bad brains or just the focus on bad brains allows us to have a broader focus on the contributions of punks of colors. So I remember watching a documentary about the African-American punk band Fishbone, and they gave a shout out to the Bad Brains too. What is the status of Bad Brains in the broader, let's say, Afropunk scene today? Are they seen as one of those trailblazers or are they just one of the bands? Because it's interesting that you position the Bad Brains very strongly in the hardcore But one of the things that was probably even more remarkable or controversial, perhaps, than them being black was that they also played reggae. And that didn't sit well with part of the hardcore crowd. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't want to speak for the Afropunk movement. I think it comes from the outside where this, there's this definition of what punk is. But of course, people within the movement say, yeah, that's straight edge. This is hardcore. This is like right girl punk, etc. Fine. But punk is supposed to be eclectic, right? It's supposed to do, you do it yourself, right? So you're supposed to take on all these different influences like The Clash did and like The Bad Brains did. And they're both punk, right? Right. But they're conveying it in a way of the very bare basics, do-it-yourself type of 
how they presented themselves and also how they played. And if we just think also with a parallel with The Clash, because nobody questions that The Clash is punk. The Clash was at the forefront of Rock Against Racism. And then what was the Bad Brains doing? They were going to public housing in Washington, D.C. and playing these rad shows because they wanted to bring people in, right? They wanted to... They wanted to talk to other poor Black people and share their music. So again, I can't speak for the Afro-punk movement, but I think the fact that they were eclectic and the type of styles they played, I think is very punk. <laughs> <laughs> it's very punk. There's a, sometimes the, the terminology I have is like, there's a lot of curse words, but I'll refrain from that. But it's like super punk rock. Right. You're currently working on a project on the punk scene in El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. Why El Paso? I'm from Albuquerque. I was in the Albuquerque scene and many of the bands that I knew were from El Paso. And actually the bands that I preferred were from El Paso. So I've gone to a couple of shows in El Paso and they were amazing. I would go to a punk rock show that was at a drag race in the desert. And so I've always had a love of El Paso, probably partly because I was born near there. I was born in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is very close by. But what I really, really liked about El Paso punk is that There was a city or is a city that is predominantly of color. And Mm -hmm. the people that were singing and playing were like a mix of like white, Chicano, you know, Latino, Arab, so forth. And I was like, this is what this is what I resonate with. This is why I love punk so much. And, you know, obviously I like the the bigger bands, most notable bands like at the drive in Sparta, Jim Ward. And they're really great. But what I really love about this series of scenes that I began to have interactions with when I started interviewing people is that there were people were doing so many creative things. They had shows in their backyards. They had shows in the desert. They had friends in Juarez and they would play shows in Juarez and back and forth. Right. So there was all this creativity, but in a mixed working class city that people just ride off, even though it's actually a very, very important city geopolitically. But it's oftentimes like, no, no, of course, Washington, D.C. or of course, Seattle. But why not El Paso? And I think for me, I think it's because it is, it's a city that's predominantly of color. And what makes El Paso also so interesting is, of course, it's a border town and it's mm-hmm. almost as much connected to Mexico as it is to D.C., if not more. And you already mentioned like Juarez, which is the Mexican city across the border, which is a city that is very hard hit by the war on drugs and by the cartels. How are the punk scenes related? I assume there are some punks in Juarez. Are bands from Juarez playing in El Paso at the moment because it's easier? Is the whole issue of drugs and the violence related to drugs part of the punk movement, what is being debated? My focus is on 1990s punk. This is really when the the drug war or the what you're talking about, the rise of the cartels explodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are more gangs in Juarez than there are throughout Mexico at this time. So I'm going to talk mainly about 1990s. The connections were very close. Like first, the Chicanos that were in El Paso had friends or cousins or they had dual citizenship. So they would go back and forth across, right? And then there were people in Juarez or from Chihuahua City that would study at UTEP, University of Texas in El Paso. So I'll give you two examples. So there's a guy named Mundo, and he would go to shows in El Paso. He was living in Juarez. And what he and this guy, Eric Frescas, who is American, but I think he has a dual citizenship, they met in Juarez, and they're like, why don't we attract shows from national punk bands in the 1990s? 
through the, I'm going to have to say a bad word, but it's the name of the journal, book your own fucking life, right? Mm -hmm. You just book your own fucking life. You, you know, Eric Frescas would say, Hey, you want to play a show? You can play two shows. You can play a show in El Paso and then play a show in Juarez. And Mundo, who lived in Juarez, had this garage called Lencho's Place, and people would play there. And so then the next night, they would go into El Paso or vice versa. So right. there is this thing which is so creative. And then yeah. there's another band called Revolución X. If you listen to podcasts in Spanish from Latin America, a lot of people call it the, the ghost band, Revolución X. Nobody knows who's the head of this band and so forth. But the person that was the head of the band, Gaspar Orozco, he is this great poet, and he started the band in Chihuahua City to correspond with the rising of the Zapatista movement in 1994. And then he would play, he played a few shows, but mainly with band members from El Paso. So his few live shows that he had were two people from El Paso playing with him. And so you had this like very intricate, intertwined relationship. And then many of the, again, many of the people that were on the El Paso side, they just had family there. So even right. the American bands had a lot of Spanish. They had a lot of issues that reflected their heritage there. So there's just this really great layered series of music worlds that I'm beginning to uncover. And it's, it's fantastic. And I love it. And the people I've interviewed thus far... You just see how creative people were, especially women. There were a lot of young women that were booking shows, having shows in their backyard, and amazing. That sounds fascinating. In an interview uh, many years ago, you said, mm -hmm. and I quote, sociology illuminates what we take for granted, end of quote. Mm -hmm. In what way does that relate to your own work? When I saw that quote, I was like, oh, did I say that? I haven't remembered <laughs> that. I think it resonates with, again, George Lipsitz. I'm, I'm a big fan of his because I think our experience is very similar. And he just, he's an amazing writer. And he once said that really when we begin to study things, we see these hidden inequalities, right? And I think that's what sociology does. For many of us who have these like internalized forms of shame or internalized racism, et cetera, Really what sociology does is it unmasks that and says, oh, well, that's not normal. Now you are a valuable human being. It's like, here are power structures. So that's what I aim to do with my work. I'm glad that you appreciate sport and art and music and politics, because oftentimes I think in academia, if you're studying history or maybe, I don't know, other topics, like studying punk rock is seen as like, what, what's that? That has no value. But it resonates with Bourdieu's ideas of cultural capital. It's like, well, it has no value to you because maybe you're not like a working class or person of color where music had such an influence on you. You know, we might not remember yeah. when so-and-so was elected or, you know, something, you know, something that was written into law, but we probably sure as hell remember the first time we heard our favorite song and how much it yeah. shapes our identity and how that can actually propel us to do really powerful things socially. And that's not just like the Joe Strummers of saying, yeah, you know, music can be political. If we just look at how the far right, this is more your expertise, the far right goes to punk rock shows around the United States and really tries to organize white kids to promote their right wing agenda. Don't subscribe to those ideas. Know that culture is powerful and we need to support culture. So punk rock and rap and heavy metal, those three music worlds that I'm going to be discussing in my book on El Paso, those can be points of liberation 
for all of us. So I think that's what sociology does. It unmasks those inequalities and provides vehicle for us to feel empowered, especially those of us who are marginalized by dominance. Yeah. And so finally, what is the most important misperception about the role of race in the U.S. punk movement? That it's white. (laughs) That it's white (laughs) and it's male and it's middle class. It's just shocking that I read it over and over again, even by journalists who, not just journalists or academics, that are reasonably informed. And there's this really great zine from a Black punk in Chicago, Yumi Thicado. And what he says is that punk needs to be extricated from whiteness. And for some reason, that music has just been associated with whites. And again, there are white people there. There are white middle class, white upper class people that are involved. But just like putting bad brains in the pantheon, like people need to know that we built that pantheon. (laughs) People of color built that pantheon, women, queer and whites build that pantheon so it shouldn't just be dismissed as white music it's our it's our in a big encompassing circle of like it's it should be everybody's because the basis of punk rock is inclusivity it should be inclusivity and it should be raw and it should be focused on passion and doing something different yeah i totally agree Mm -hmm. thank you very much for coming on the show tara thank you so much it's been an honor Tara Lopez is staying under the radar of social media, but you can order her book, The Winter of Discontent, Myth, Memory, and History, published by Liverpool University Press in 2014. But please don't buy it at Amazon. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really melody maker. I'm seeing that a dunk out. Playing with his beard No wonder that that's Capitale Turned out a little weird